So the second film I've chosen is a 2001 movie, um, Donnie Darko by Richard Kelly. It was as though this plan had been with him all his life, pondered through the seasons. Now, in his 15th year, crystallized with the pain of puberty. So, why'd you move here? My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? I met a new friend. Real or imaginary? Your cup, Tony. Imaginary. Have you ever seen a portal? Has he ever told you about his friend Frank, the giant bunny rabbit? The what? Every living thing follows along set path. And if you could see your path or channel, then you could see into the future, right? I'm not going to be able to continue this conversation. We're just going to stop. You should already know that. And I guess it's a, it's a good continuation maybe from The Cell in terms of uh, the tonal vibe of Donnie Darko. I think it's a very creepy film. It's, uh, yeah. um, and it's effectively about a young teenager. It's set in 1988 during the time of Halloween, so it's already got a little bit of that horror element to it. Um, he's a teenager, young teenager named Donnie Darko, and it effectively starts with him sleepwalking, sleepwalking out of his house one night and he sees a giant demonic looking rabbit uh, named Frank who effectively tells him the world's gonna end in 28 days. He's a lot more specific than that. Um, and when Donnie returns home, he finds that a, a jet engine from a, from a plane has crashed into his bedroom. So the big question for, for Donnie and I guess for all of us watching is, is he kind of living in a parallel universe? Is he suffering from mental illness? Mm. Or is the world really going to end? The story itself, I think, is quite well rooted in sort of genre films. I think it's got a real um, 80s vibe to it. I mean, Drew Barrymore um, is one of the key characters, one of the main characters in there. She plays a, a, you know, a young teacher. And I think she was uh, one of the people that enabled the film to get made in the first place. It was a little bit of her clout that was able to get the film off the ground because I think the script itself, you know, Kelly being a, a new director, I think it was a real challenge to get it off the ground. Um, but the, the, the film itself uh, is, is just, you know, a wonderful example, I think, of um, a film that's got, and I think this is one of the reasons why by choosing specific directors in certain films, and we were talking about this earlier, about what makes these things work as standalones. You know, it's almost like they come out of the gate and they're fully formed. Yeah. Um, and I think this is one of those prime examples that it just oozes confidence. And I think this is one of those things that Richard Kelly, I mean, it's been spoken a lot about that his career has sort of gone into, you know, a dive. Um, but he's definitely someone that has a very particular vision and he's someone that's not I think in a sense willing to compromise that vision um, especially in his first two films um, this one in Southland Tales but Donnie Darko is it's just a really really um, great film um, because of its sense of a genre mashup I think it deals with 
you know, the key themes that it deals with is is adolescent isolation. Um, I think there's there's almost like a self sacrifice aspect to it. I think what I what I thought was really good about the film too is that it brought in elements of uh, mental health um, because it could have been like plenty of other films that were sort of coming of age movies. There's there's sort of like a romantic aspect to it as well um, with um, you know kind of like a a love story between him and a girl that he meets at school, a new girl that comes into school. Mm-hmm. But it's really about the dynamic of how Donnie is is facing up, in a sense, to, I guess, fate. And it's a time travel film, so it's got a it, it's got a lot of intellectual uh, clout to it. I think it's got something that 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 pushes beyond the reach of maybe other movies. Um, into a slightly different area that's trying to get you to think a little bit more about all of these different elements that are happening in the movie itself. Um, but it's it's one of those films that, you know, when you think about, you know, his name's Donnie Darko and it, and it has that element of him as some kind of superhero. And it is mentioned at one point because the girl he's sort of, you know, in lust or in love with, um, you know, this underlying romance that happens effectively says at one point it's like you know what's this name that you've got it sounds like you're a superhero and it, and at that stage <laughs> he says well m- what makes you think that i'm not <laughs> so th- there's this aspect in there but there's also elements within the film you know again bringing that that this idea of the 1980s you know patrick swayze's in it and he plays oh, yeah. this dubious he plays this dubious character um that is almost like a, a guru and it's and it's pretty prescient, I think, at the time that it came out. It's a real criticism, I think, the film itself. It's a film about politics. Um, it's a film about, you know, this, this whole idea of these sanctimonious hypocrites, you know, in the States who kind of peddle this feel-good nonsense, you know, simplifying the world into very simple ideas, which I think to any teenager um, is something to rebel against. And I think Donnie is one of those characters that you see is a rebel, I think talking about why the film for me works really well um, is I think that the, the characters themselves are drawn with real depth, especially Donnie, because this was effectively the film that launched Jake Gyllenhaal's career, as well as his sister Maggie, because his, his sister actually plays his sister in the movie. Yeah. Um, I think the effects in the film are believable, and they're I think in a way they're more human because they don't rely too heavily on CGI. There are CGI elements to it, but... I think it sits very well in the horror genre because of Frank, the, this demonic rabbit. Yeah. I think it's iconic and it's used on the poster, it's used on images. And you think about any you know, horror film or slasher movie that you've got these iconic masks. And I think that lends it something that feels quite within the context of horror. And also at one point when they go, him and his girlfriend go to watch a movie, they go to watch The Evil Dead. So mm-hmm. it's referencing Sam Raimi. So there's a lot of these things in there. And also his psycho, I think it's his, his psychologist or psychotherapist is played by Catherine Ross from The Graduate. So we're going back into the 60s as well. And so I think he's got so many different elements in there that make it recognizable, kind of in the same way that I guess um, Stranger Things captures a mood of the 80s. Mm. And I think at that stage in the 2000s, I think what um, Kelly did with Donnie Darko was was capture a mood of the 80s. Because obviously it was set in the 80s, so you had that 
kind of concept. But I think he was being very true to that. Yeah. I think it also works as a coming of age movie in the same vein as like John Hughes or, you know, Spielberg with his younger protagonist. But, you know, there's this teenage rom-com element and the psychological drama, you know, with this added intelligence. I think it makes it makes it somewhat unclassifiable and maybe that's why it didn't succeed as well as it did although there was other elements that i think contributed to that i think it's got this really eerie atmosphere and the mood that's captured by this angsty sort of millennial mood of the time because it was coming just after you know the 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 new millennium Mm. so i think the apocalyptic element i think is in there but it's very very it, it kind of saturates the film the idea of the apocalypse and um, I think it also did, you know, it very well. It sort of acknowledged the concerns around mental health for troubled teens in a really mature way mm. that sometimes I don't think you saw in other films before that. Yeah. Um, so I think it was a very solid, solid film. And I really liked um, from The Guardian, Guy Lodge had, had summed up, you know, he, he wrote something really good about it where he said the film's uh, solemnly soulful adventures in time travel offer a kind of symbolic validation for anyone who sees, feels, or experiences the world differently from everyone around them. Mm. So I thought that was really good in terms of highlighting this idea of the isolated um, adolescent and how that can be a real burden for them, but also it's about how they come to terms with that. And that's a story that never gets old, right? I mean, even today, the movie is, is still really popular with teenage audiences. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I I teach teenagers, and even even today, I'll hear students like talking about it or suggesting it to friends, Um, Mm. and yeah, so it really seems to to really tap into something. And uh, on an exaggerated scale, it taps into like that existential angst that a lot of teenagers fall into at some point, right? That when you start questioning the meaning of life or your place in the universe or the purpose of the universe or, or time mm. and love and, mm. you know, all these big ideas that you're starting as a teenager to, like, really, truly think about. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, um, you know, it, it was, it didn't, I think it only made about $500,000 in its initial run, so it flopped um, as a movie originally. And, and, you know, a lot of people spoke about the fact that there's a plane crash. This was coming straight after 9-11. So I think that didn't contribute well to it. I think the idea that it was quite unclassifiable, I think it didn't have a very big run. Um, I don't think it was successful at Sundance when it was, when it was first shown. And I think that, you know, I think that impacted quite heavily on Kelly, but it was one of those films, I think just, you know, as, not the death of video and all that sort of stuff, but it was it was near the time where you know the impact of something like that was was going to wane. But still, in two thousand two thousand and one, it found an audience through VHS and DVDs. So yeah. before it even came to the UK, because it was you know at that stage. I mean, now we've got movies that come you know released all over the world pretty much at the same time but back then there was a real delay between movies being in the states and then coming you know to let's say the uk and it became a a huge sort of underground hit yeah i think when people started to see it and then there were some of the smaller you know retrospective movie theaters that started to play it, and i think there was a movie theater in new york that started to play it on on loop almost consistently, constantly. Hmm. And the, the power of those types of small movie theaters 
to be able to build an audience you know and this is pre the the age of you know social media so it really had to rely on small um, advocates you know people that actually loved the movie and saw it as something is really valid yeah for that to become a success so I think it stands as a film that found that audience over time you know it started from the ground up rather than a production company like now putting tons you know 100 million dollars into the marketing of it so they get a really big first weekend yeah this was the complete reverse it was a it was a case in point of a lot of those movies that actually the audiences you know small groups of fans build the audience and actually make it a success yeah yeah i feel like Danny darko is one of those movies where the the avid fans feel like a real emotional attachment to the movie almost um definitely like definitely. it like it speaks to them you know um and i'm also just curious because you you mentioned this briefly a few minutes ago but what what do you make of kelly's later work i mean you mentioned southland tales i know we've we've spoken briefly about i think his last feature film correct me if i'm wrong was the box um yeah but what do you how do you feel about those what do you think of those well i i think southland tales i think a lot of people realize it's a bit of a mess but uh, there's elements i think to to both southland tales i think the box was almost it felt to me like it was his last hurrah it was the last opportunity that he had where he was taking a fairly conventional not a conventional story but something that was a smaller story but even with that, you know, a lot of people were criticizing the third act that he effectively went on a flight of fancy that he always would do. Yeah. And I think with Southland Tales, I, you know, I think everyone can acknowledge um, the ambition, the scope, the individual voice that he might have to create his stories. You know, I read I read an interview with him that he was saying he never looked at the idea. You know, he always appreciated that he was in a position of you know, responsibility mm. for making films because he realized that not everyone gets the opportunity at the age of 24 to make a movie like he did with Donnie Darko. Mm. So he never kind of looked at the idea of being given lots of money to make the South, you know, Southland Tales because I think Southland Tales was the type of project that because Donnie Darko did well over time, it was almost like he was trusted to kind of do what he wanted to do in a way. Yeah. But I don't think he he looked at that as like he could abuse that. I think he realized that it was a great you know privilege to be able to make a film. But I think what he also realized is that when you have the privilege, then maybe this might be the last time that you've got the opportunity to do something, is you might as well go out and do what you want to do yeah. and how you want to do it. But I think it's one of those compromised movies that maybe because the budget was bigger and this is a problem that a lot of directors have is that when the budget gets bigger and there's more stars involved you know it's like the difficult second album mm. whereas the first one with Donnie Darko he had to you know he had to be more be more resourceful smaller budget you know people that were relying on him and really you know helping him to get the film off the ground um and although there's elements to it that make it feel, feel like a bigger film it's you could it's it wasn't actually expensive to make because there are no major effects i think a lot of the effects that he did he was working on you know were, were quite small effects to to create mm -hmm. so it was 
you know, it was it was a, it was a, a small budget. It was more like an indie movie. But I think Southland's Tales is pretty, you know, it sort of ballooned, didn't it? Yeah. I think as a as a as an idea as a concept. But you know, you have to appreciate what he was trying to do with a film like that. And the box, I think the box has got some great scenes in it. I think it's got great elements to it. I think it's based on a you know a really good book. So it had all the elements in there. But I think it's one of those things of when you start to put your own voice there and maybe you get a little bit untethered and you're not really focusing heavily on the characters or the characterization because I think that's the, that's the thing that makes Donnie Darko work so well is that, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal with Donnie Darko is such a believable character. Mm. He's, he's someone that you really empathize with. He's got those sad puppy dog eyes. He looks like, a, you know, an emo character. He, you know, he's, he's just got that very dark you know, moody teenage look, but he carries that off. And I think the film is the crux of it is around him. And that's, he's the person that carries us through it because yeah. we have to empathize with his story. And because he's a troubled teen that's basically seen the future and he's, he realizes that he's going to have to sacrifice himself. And I think it's that, that seems to be something that fe- fits quite nicely into the whole idea of heroism. And who knows, maybe there's something that did connect to 9-11 about this idea of sacrifice. Not that I think a lot of people, you know, quite a few people were confused by it and there was so much stuff on the internet. I think that helped it to grow as well. Yeah. There was a mystery within it that, you know, people wanted to solve. And there was, like in Pulp Fiction, there's, you know, there, there's stuff in there that you want to unravel and it's a puzzle to create. Whereas I don't think as many people wanted to figure out the puzzle of Southland Tales. Mm. I just don't think they were involved or engaged enough with it. Yeah. I agree with you about the box, though. I, I, I think there's a lot to admire about the box. Um, mm. And also a and another period piece, right? Because that one takes place, I think, yeah. in, in the 70s. And I kind yeah. of I kind of think of that as uh, uh, almost almost like Kelly's stab at a at a Hitchcock movie or something, especially in the opening mm. scenes. Like you said, towards the end, it kind of goes uh, off into the into the fantastical. But in the mm. opening sections, um, it's it has like a I think a restraint and a sense of suspense in the first maybe like hour or so that I thought was really well done. So yeah, and it, and it has the element of a moral dilemma, and you know Donnie has a dilemma as well. You know, this time travel element that that infuses the entire film is about the idea that he sees something that other people don't see and we're catching up with. But we're also discovering, you know, his fate as he goes through, you know, and him, the way that he acts that character is such a mature role because he's carrying that on his shoulders is this idea that he knows he's he has to die. His life will end, but it's to sacrifice or to save his girlfriend's life. Yeah. It's to save someone else. But he he he's caught in that quandary of realizing that everything is leading to it. And and that's the beauty of that sort of film is in the same way as something like Christopher Nolan's Memento is that it's a film that you can rewatch because you start to understand more about and on a deeper level about what it's what it's really talking about. Yeah. It's about the idea of can we outrun our fate? Can we ever, you know, time travel, the, the, the big issue about time travel is that no matter what we do, is it going to fit? It's like the multiverse now. And maybe that's another thing that's going to make it again quite successful is because it was dealing with kind of this idea of multiverses. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, alternate realities. Yeah, and I think uh, the the comparison to a puzzle is very apt, and I agree. And I think you're right in saying that, you know, yes, it's a it's something of a puzzle movie, but it's also mm. a puzzle movie where once you do figure out the puzzle, mm. there's still a lot there to unpack once you kind of put the pieces together. So it's it's not just a once you figure it out. You're like, oh, okay, I get it, and you don't have to think about it anymore. There's still those deeper layers, those deeper thematic layers that you can kind of dig into once all the pieces mm. come together. So yeah, so I, you know, I, I highly recommend, but I think so many people have seen that film. I think it's one of those classics that's kind of stood the test of time. It's just a shame that maybe, you know, Kelly hasn't made more films because as a voice. I think it would be really interesting to see what he does because now he's sort of reissuing Donnie Darko. He's recutting Southland Tales. He's kind of working with us, you know, with his very small catalog of films yeah. to keep, you know, amending and adjusting. Whereas in a way you kind of feel like you want him to move that away yeah. and then push forward. Because even something like S. Darko, which was a spin-off of Donnie Darko, which he says he had nothing to do with. It was almost like the studio because they owned the rights yeah, you know, he was very aware of the fact that he, you know, he couldn't own the rights for Donnie Duck because it was his first film. So when you're that young, to be v- that precocious, precocious to say no, I'm going to own all the rights, you know, the studio was going to do what they were going to do. Yeah. So yeah, what's your next pick then, Tom? All right. Well, continuing in the the horror vein, I'm going with Ari Aster's 2018 debut, Hereditary. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's Grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. She isn't gone. Who's gonna take care of me? You don't think I'm gonna take care of you? when you die. She wasn't altogether there. Ah! At the end. To get to the story itself, we have Tony Collette as Annie, and she's the matriarch of a very uh, dysfunctional family. The film opens with the, the death of her estranged mother and without giving too much away uh, after the mother's death her and her family are essentially plagued by a number of supernatural tragedies um, and sort of find themselves in in the crosshairs of this of this occult plot very popular uh, very incredibly overwhelmingly positive uh feedback on the festival circuit it had a lot of buzz uh going into its major release and i think i mean it's definitely it definitely has a uh, a very like devoted uh strong audience and even though aster has only made two films of co- of course uh 2019 was midsommar but mm. um he just has the two films and then coming up this year apparently this year is uh, disappointment boulevard but uh even though it's a considerably 
small out, output as of yet. Uh, I think there's something of a of like a fan cult has developed already around mm. uh, Ari Aster in the same way that it has around, you know, like Robert Eggers of um, The Witch and The Lighthouse. But mm. I'll start with why it worked for me because I've, I have a very vivid memory of seeing it for the first time. It was one of those movie-going experiences that immediately after seeing it, I just knew that I, I loved it, that I hadn't quite seen a horror movie quite like it. I mean, you could you could definitely see its influences, and I'll talk about that a little bit uh, shortly. But I just, a, a lot of the time, even if I really like a movie, I, I might have to kind of sit on it and think about it and, and kind of mull it over. But this was one where, you know, when I was walking out of the theater, I was just I was elated almost. I was like energized because of mm. of how mm. of how new and exciting and um and and bold it felt. And I think part of the reason that I felt that way is definitely just the vision of the film and the construction of the film. I think that in terms of just narratively speaking, I think it's almost perfectly constructed. I mean, it's because they're in this they because they're kind of the target of this uh of this kind of cult plot mm. one of the one of the fun things about revisiting the film is that you know you can definitely notice little little tiny details uh in the background seemingly incidental details that prove crucial to the to the construction of the story or to the uh to the plot that the family is sort of stuck in. So something like, you know, the, the wallpaper design in her, uh, in the house or, uh, you know, something carved into a, a light pole on the side of the road, little things that mm. you, you might notice on first viewing, but maybe not, uh, mm. seeing it again and noticing these little things, it, it's really quite impressive to see, sort of the accumulation of little details that are peppered all throughout the film that make it uh, very cohesive. Um, and in that respect, it kind of reminded me of Rosemary's Baby. What I think the character's name in Rosemary's Baby is Hitch, the guy who's, uh, whose glove goes missing. And mm. uh, you think, you know, it's like an incidental detail, but you find out later that you know the the Satanists stole his gloves so that they could curse him and and all that stuff. But that's mm. that's what kind of made me make that connection to Rosemary's Baby. That there were these little incidental details that added up and contributed to this grander picture. Um, mm. Of course, I I have to mention Tony Collette's performance as Annie. I think I think it's a phenomenal performance. I. I think, and I'm not alone in saying this, I know, but I, I definitely think she deserved an Oscar nomination for that performance. It's really, mm. really fantastic. It's nuanced. And, it's yeah, really, really nuanced. It's really yeah. nuanced. And mm. um, uh, one scene I think that really shows kind of a, a, a really nice marriage of, of content and form is when Annie is at the grief counseling session after the, after the death of Charlie. Mm. And she delivers this fantastically written monologue where she's kind of going into all of the 
all of the family trauma that she's endured through her mm-hmm. through her mother and um so it's it's one take and that's something that that Aster I think is is very consciously trying to maintain throughout his films so far is to kind of extend these takes as much as he can without it being too too overbearing or too conspicuous but there's uh as she's delivering this monologue the camera sort of like dollies back very slowly and then dollies back forward up close to her again as as the as this monologue is kind of uh ebbing and flowing and it's it's kind of a a simple camera movement and a simple scene but i just think it's it, it kind of encapsulates this uh perfect dovetailing of uh of style and then the 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 camera work and style um complementing the dialogue and the story rather than just being you know a a showy stylistic flourish um Mm. and then of course colin stetson's music is fantastic the soundtrack to the film is fantastic uh what did you think of um one one element that I've really really enjoyed about it was was the fact that Annie's character is like a model maker, so she builds these models and yeah. the way that the film uses the context of the house because so many films aren't they in the horror genre like horror they're, they're um, haunted house films you know the house plays such an important role. Um, whether it's the treehouse, because there's the treehouse that's got a real eerie element, and that's where the film effectively ends. Mm-hmm. There's this treehouse they keep seeing, which has got some element about it. But it's it's the way of turning the home, inverting the whole idea of what the home represents as yeah. safety. And the fact that she is building these models and the way... I, I just think it's fascinating because she's the central character she is in a sense creating that world isn't she not only in the sense that she's the mother and the mother is the central focus of the home but the fact that she's actually building homes she's creating the houses yeah and i really like the subtle use of the way that her character transforms throughout the film but also the way that and people have spoken a lot about Ari Aster, not just in this film, but also in Midsommar, the way that the the images and art prefigure what's going to happen. They basically yeah. tell you what's going to happen next. And in this film, you know, in Hereditary, the house and the fact that she's building things and she's making these maquettes and she's creating the characters within the, you know, within the context of the doll's house. Mm-hmm. In Midsommar, it's the paintings and the pictures on the walls of the dormitory where right. all the visitors stay. Yeah, the scarecrows on all, the shelf. Yeah, and it's all those types of things that are there. And I think that's, again, what makes him such a great filmmaker, even though he's made two, but the confidence that he had with Hereditary to know and to be influenced a lot by, you know, even Polanski, like we're mentioning with Rosemary's Baby, and, and coming with all these greats of which you're kind of aware that he's aware of but I think what he does is he brings a very contemporary view to it because he's got his own way of thinking he's got his own sort of ambitions in terms of the way that he's a visual filmmaker but he's also in he's incredibly intelligent with his research because I've read quite a few articles about the amount of research that he does 
to inform his films, which is usually what lifts a film from being something that you see face value and f- you forget, yeah. you know, within two hours. And a movie that is rich with meaning because the director has spent so much time thinking those things out yes. and putting those things in the film for you to find them. In the yeah. same way as like Jacques Tati would have created the mise-en-scene where there's tons of things going on. And if yeah. you watch it the first time, yes, you might be watch, you know, watching what's happening you know, in the center of the image. But the next time you watch it, you're going to be watching what's in the corners of the image. Your yeah. eye will move to different places. And I think he's very steeped in that as a director that is so well-informed but wants to tell lots of different stories to yeah. us. The premise, the central story, but also all these things that are aiding the story. Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, I think a crucial distinction, and I, this applies, I think, equally to Donnie Dargo, is I think some I think some audiences might look at something like that and say, like, oh, it's that, that just makes it like a puzzle box film. And, mm. Uh, mm. and it's like a Rubik's Cube. And once you put, once all the sides, you know, match, there's really nothing there um, once you solve the puzzle. But I think with Donnie Darko, as with Hereditary, that's, you know, absolutely not true. And I mm. think the model, your reference to the model, uh, the models that Annie makes is a perfect example of that because I think um, besides just prefiguring sometimes things that will happen later in the story, I think the models serve a, a deeper function of kind of commenting on this idea of, of fate and you know this this sort of metaphor of the characters in the story are are sort of like the are like they're like figurines they're like models they're you know mm. there's there's so many things that are that are beyond their control that they're not they're not even aware of that are guiding and uh and determining the course of their lives and i think the kind of the thematic richness of that idea is what was is what makes the the film uh also so revisitable i don't know if that's a word but yeah. well you just you just used it and i'll accept it so I there it is a great word yeah thank you <laughs> yeah but it, it's it's interesting though because the the premise of this idea that a film like this and like donnie darko is about fate isn't it it's about coincidence but that there, there is no coincidence everything is kind of prefigured that's film generally, isn't it? Because the director has got a script. He kind of knows where it's going to go. Yeah. He's got a story that, that people are going to fulfill. They might not know they're, they're going to go d- down that route, but the director is the god yeah. <laughs> that's creating that. And I think sometimes when you've got directors that really make that more visible, mm. make you realize that, okay, this is a story about not having choices. Yeah. Or thinking that you've got choice, but ultimately there is no choice. It's all going to roll it's all going to take its course. Yeah. People and the the roles that were assigned, right? The char- the char- the actors themselves in the film are the director's models, right? Absolutely. But I th- I think it's also worth mentioning that it's a horrific film. Yeah. I mean, when I saw it, there's there's five or six images in it, and I think this is the 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 key of any horror film, isn't it? Or psychological horror, anything is if an image stays with you. And way after the film is finished, and he's, with both films, with this one and with Midsommar, he creates images that are just so visceral. Yeah. And and they don't necessarily have to be horrific. 
it can be a face. And the fact that he uses Millie Shapiro, already she's got quite a, an unusual face. She's got quite a strange-looking character. Yeah. But, I mean, there's two or three... And, and what he did with Alex Wolf, who plays the brother, Peter, and the way his face contorts, you know, when he looks into the mirror and he's in the classroom, mm-hmm. and he's starting to transform and change and things are happening to him because he's carrying so much guilt, isn't he, about the death of Charlie? Yeah. And the way that transpires which I think it's worth saying. I mean, that is one of the most horrific images I had seen. But it's it's one of those things that I remember when I was watching it and she's in the back of the car and she puts her head out of the window, you know, yeah. Charlie. I knew something was going to come. And I think most people would know that something was going to come. But how it comes is yeah. just horrific. And what's what I think... Ari Aster is as well is that it's not just about shock because it's the way that he deals with um, Peter's character in the guilt that he carries and what is he going to say yeah how is that going to be delivered that is some of the most horrific things in the film yeah because it's so true to the idea it's not just something that goes okay she dies and then this is what happens next it's she dies and then there's this gap this pause Mm -hmm. because of what the hell is how is he going to confront this how is he going to face up to this yeah and that's yeah there's just a few images in that that i just think are stunning oh yeah and you could put them in any film and they would be just um memorable for all different sorts of reasons yeah agreed and not just like you said there's all sorts of in both films uh very graphic horrific images that are quite memorable um you know charlie's severed head covered with ants on the side of the road right or mm, mm, in uh, mm. midsummer with the you know extreme close-up of someone's head being smashed in with a hammer um mm. so of course those are like indelible images but like you said they're not all uh you know his visual eye isn't just limited to to the to the horrific I, one of my favorite little things about hereditary for example is um is how the presence, the the ghostly presence of the grandma and later of Charlie, is conveyed mm. through that little like fluttering light that um, mm, mm, that kind mm. of like ripples across the room, and mm. um, and the Alex Wolf character will you know he'll be in the classroom and he'll see that little that little light kind of descend down on the on the floor and no one else can see it and just like mm. little nice little touches like that that um, are very simple um, but also very unsettling and not the kind of thing that you would expect to see in a horror movie yeah i i i think when i watched it i aligned it quite closely with something like the wicker man because it has that psychological um underbelly and it's also got the uh you know folkloric you know this this idea of of this strange sacrifice and um yeah, there's like witchcraft. There's there's elements within it that just root it in something that's that's sort of almost from the Middle Ages, yeah. as opposed from the present day. And I think that's the thing that you can really sometimes work with um, when you're making films. You know, Robert Eggers I think did it really well um, in The Witch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. which is this this you know taking something that's an older story or something that's you know ancient, almost biblical, but not biblical because it's not the bible it's more 
And I think, you know, in that sense of sacrifice, because we were talking about in Donnie Darko as well, he has to make a sacrifice in this thing as well. You know, you, you, you feel that there's something within it that's got a religious subtext mm -hmm. that you can unpick because there's fire in it. There's, you know, beheading. There's lots of things that make it feel like it's something, you know, like the exorcist, that yeah. there's a religious undertone yeah. or an anti-religious undertone that's kind of just breathing underneath it that gives it that sort of ooze of, of creeping dread. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, now that you mentioned sort of the medieval influence, there's a lot of crown imagery in the film. Uh, mm. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of like altar-like imagery. Mm -hmm. There's like both mm -hmm. literal altars, right? The the altar mm. in the treehouse at the end. Um, mm. But then also just things that look altar-like. Uh, like I remember... Uh, the you know when the bird hits the window and mm. uh very tellingly smashes its head and lands on the bush the bush uh you know the way that it's 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 trimmed and formed it, it almost looks like the dead bird is like resting on this this green altar so yeah yeah and i think the the well, it's just that idea of the occult. I mean, the occult infuses lots of horror films, but you know, nine times out of ten, it's done really lazily. Yeah. And here, it's one of those cases that it's such a big part of the film, but it, it finds the balance between being a story about a family in crisis and the idea of this subtext of the occult and tradition and history and family lineage mm. and the sins of the fathers or the sins of the parents being revisited on the sins of the it's all those content you know it's got so much richness to it that i think he's totally aware of and he's done it in a mature way and in a respectful way that mm. feels that when you're watching it it's not being belittled by the idea of a lot of horror films that can just be um out to shock or yeah. out to scare you or out to frighten you it's not really that yeah no agreed definitely so thanks for tuning in to this second part of our director debut episode and uh, listen out for part three where we'll be discussing ryan johnson's noir inspired high school whodunit brick and dea kulum begashvili's haunting religious allegory beginning <laughs>